a series that we've been um, looking at is called The Making of a Global Church. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul, various incidents in his life as recorded to enact. And um, this week he's got to that great centre of learning, Athens. Let me though tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a pond full of tadpoles. Being all head and no bodies, the tadpoles liked to think and to argue. They discussed and investigated their pond, which they called the universe. Pond weeds were described and analysed and taxonomically organised. The mud was surveyed, the uh, banks were explored, the meniscus, which they called the firmament, was admired above them. One clever uh, tadpole even suggested that they could describe the very medium in which they existed. He called it water. He proposed that it was one of the fundamental building blocks of the universe, along with mud and light which the firmament seemed to produce out of nothing. One day, one of the tadpoles began to grow strange protuberances from its side. Initially, the other tadpoles tried to ignore them and certainly not to mention them. After all, it would be rude. As time went by, the growths became impossible to ignore. So the brainy tadpoles They seemed completely useless. A head to think and a tail to navigate in the water were surely enough for anyone. They treated their compatriot with the deep compassion reserved for the deformed. One fine summer morning, as the firmament shivered overhead, the tadpoles received a terrible shock. The deformed tadpole, now distinctly disabled because of the monstrous growths on his body, lumbered painfully up to his friends with a light in his eyes. I have been beyond the firmament, he said. There is light there which the firmament only transmits. There are creatures there that you would never imagine. There is life there that exists outside of water. The pond is not the universe at all, but a tiny part of it. A tadpole conference was hastily convened. It's those growths, said one, they're driving him mad. He's a danger to himself and others who may listen to him, said another. Soon a conclusion was reached. The president of the conference announced his verdict to the deformed, deluded tadpole. For the good of all concerned, he intoned, we have decided that we must chop off your legs. Not likely, came the reply. And with one bound, the frog was gone. See, every one of us actually has a model for understanding the world, a a story about the world 
by which we interpret it. In trendy circles it's called a worldview. We were thinking about it a few weeks ago. We may have worked it out with great care or we may have adopted it without even thinking about it but we will always use it to interpret everything that we come across. It becomes a filter which selects the thing that we notice. It becomes the container in which everything, all new information, must be fitted. And if that information uh, um, that, that we come across doesn't fit into our world, into our world view, then our first reaction, like those tadpoles, is usually to ignore it or, or just simply set it aside as, a, as an oddity. If the new inter- information begins to seriously threaten our world view, then uh, human beings again and again show uh, a fascinating and disconcerting reaction. We attack the information or the information bearer. It's happened again and again down through history. Why is it that we do that? I think it's because, you see, we sense that our our world view, our story about how how the world works, is actually vital and central to who we are. It it shapes us, it guides us, it it gives us security. Now most of us here perhaps don't much like moving house. Imagine moving worlds. Imagine suddenly starting to adjust to living in a completely different world. But that's what uh, we have to do uh, if we are to uh, really re-examine and be prepared to change our worldview. Now as Christians we need to understand uh, that as we present to others the, the Christian worldview, the Christian understanding of the world, especially in today's well, there was once a time in this country when the, most of the basic, basic assumptions of uh, at least the Western world were Christian, even amongst those who weren't Christians. You know, people may or may not have believed in God, but the God that they were thinking about, that they did or didn't believe in, uh, believe in was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Jesus. Their understanding of good and evil was fundamentally shaped by Christians by Christian understanding, whether they were prepared to uh, uh, embrace that or not. That was what they were either embracing or reacting against. Their understanding of human beings was more or less um, that those human beings were made in the image of God and today almost all of that has gone. Mention God to a person in East Oxford and they might uh, think you're talking about Allah or Ganesh or the pantheist god of the Buddha or the, or the, or the, or the, or the world spirits of, uh, of paganism. Begin discussing an ethical issue with them and you will find um, fundamentally different views about humanity and so on. Today, especially in an area like, like the one that we live in, Christians and non-Christians really do live in dramatically different worlds. We inhabit the same space but we interpret it entirely differently. As differently as tadpoles and frogs. 
Now, some people profoundly regret that and there is certainly a lot to regret about that. But I have to say, my sense of regret is tempered by a very important observation. God's church was born and thrived for hundreds of years in an environment very like ours. Down through history, actually, God's church has often fallen asleep or or sometimes even transmuted into monstrous forms precisely because um, it it, uh, it became the adopted worldview of the wider society and it no longer seemed so urgent to be clear about what Christians believe and to communicate what Christians believe. The New Testament uh, actually anticipates that along, alongside many trials and difficulties, true Christianity will actually thrive as Christians live in a foreign world. That's why, actually, frankly, I am deeply excited to be alive today. We have an enormous amount to learn about living in a, in a post-Christian world, but we have a textbook for it. Because our post-Christian world is very like the pre-Christian world of the New Testament. How can we then speak to our non-Christian friends whose worldview is so different? One of, the, one of the clearest models that there is is found here in Acts chapter 17. Back in Acts chapter 13, we saw Paul, we saw Paul uh, speaking to, uh, uh, to fellow Jews and uh, opening his Bible and explaining to them how they needed to become Christians because they already had a lot of basic biblical understanding. But here, in Acts 17, Paul arrives in Athens. Soon he will find himself um, before the assembled academics of one of the oldest uh, universities in the world, the Areopagus. And as he meets them, we will see their understanding, their worldview, is entirely different from his. Now, this, this week, we can only actually introduce ourselves to, uh, uh, to, to this um, record of Paul in Athens. And next week, we'll have to look at the meat of what, uh, what Paul has to say because there are some very important things actually about how Paul ended up talking to the, to the Areopagus, to these people. Important things that we need to absorb if we are actually ever going to be able to speak to our friends who live in a different world. First of all then, we need to see Paul's passion and his distress Verse 16 of chapter Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them, that's for his um, uh, friends, his Christian friends in Athens, he's on his own. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And this is, this is, a, this is a place of magnificent architecture. 
and, uh, and of great culture. But as Paul wanders around, he is greatly distressed. That's a very, very intense word. It's the word from which we get our English um, paroxysm, actually. And it can, can apl- uh, it can imply irritation sometimes. It can imply grief. But it always has overtones of anger. Paul was deeply provoked by these idols that he saw. Angry even. Because they led people astray. They dehumanised people. They enslaved people. They in, uh, 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 destroyed them even. I wonder, do you feel that as... Uh, modern people worship the idols of money or power or sex or whatever. Do you feel that anger and that distress? This week, um, Judy and I were angered by a throwaway remark of Jonathan Miller on Desert Island Discs on Radio 4. He spoke um, very casually about public schools being dominated by sadistic Christian schoolmasters. I, I was challenged about my anger. Why was I angry? Well, I have to say, I was, I was angry firstly because it was a misrepresentation of what it really means to be a Christian. Sadistic schoolmasters are no more Christians than my dog. Whatever they might like to say. But frankly, I was more angry because I know that such remarks uh, um, are part of John, Jonathan Miller's large-scale efforts to justify atheism and to dismiss Christianity. And, 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 and never mind, frankly, that it was atheist ideologies that created Germany's final solution or Russian, Russia's Stalinist purges or Cambodia's year zero or China's cultural revolution and more in the 20th century. See, in highlighting a few sadistic schoolmasters who called themselves Christian, Jonathan Miller was trying to construct a reason why he had embraced atheism, but in doing that he was putting the most atrocious, horrendous spin on the 20th century. And that, actually, in the week when we remembered Auschwitz, Of course, Christianity is not free of its dark stains, but the Jonathan Millers of this world, whom uh, the German philosopher Schleiermacher famously called the cultured despisers of Christianity, are actually, frankly, in the end, not interested in a balanced account. They are spin doctors. And like Paul, we should be deeply distressed because ordinary people look at these clever people and they buy that spin. They are led to worship idols which have destroyed millions of lives in the 20th century alone. Let me ask you again, are you greatly distressed by the idols that people follow? 
And not just the idol of atheism either. What about the idolatry of, of power which we are seeing so much at the moment which has led even, even some Christians to justify the, the use of awesome power in Iraq. The true awesomeness actually of the Christian God is his surrender of power, his total self-giving on the cross, his victory through the vulnerability of love. You know, if the 20th century was the century of atheism, I fear that the 21st century could easily be the century which justifies uh, religious, um, uh, which involves the religious justification of power. And if it is, then that will be a very dark century indeed. Are you greatly distressed? Are you greatly distressed? On behalf of your friend who listens to Jonathan Miller and dismisses Christianity for atheism or on behalf of your friend who watches Fahrenheit 9-11 and, and notices on the television as they watch it this week that it seems to be associated in some way with Christianity. Are you greatly distressed as people quietly walk away from Christ and invest all of their hopes in something else which is never going to satisfy? Are we greatly distressed, frankly, as our nation finds it, finds it, finds it more and more difficult to establish relationships so that the number of people alone, living alone in Britain continues to rise. The number of children living without both of their natural parents continues to rise. The number of children with behavioural difficulties in schools continues to rise. The number of love-hungry teenagers who are suffering from sexually transmitted diseases continues to rise. We, we, we idolise love and we're forgetting how to love. And people are hurt, especially vulnerable people. Are you distressed? You see, witness will not begin. Christian will, witness will not begin in our lives. Unless, like the Apostle Paul, we are greatly distressed at the idols people set up. Paul came to the Areopagus, was invited to the Areopagus, was driven to the Areopagus because he was a man with open eyes He was a man who loved people and was deeply distressed at the damage that was being done to them. The other thing that uh, led him to his speech and that shaped actually what he said as we're going to see next week. The other thing is um, 
confusion. Paul starts off, his first response is to speak to everyone and anyone in his distress. He reasoned in the synagogues, verse 17, with the Jews and with God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Notice, notice incidentally, he reasoned with them. The word used implies that an argued defence of his position. For Paul, proclamation of the gospel involves showing people while it was reasonable, dealing honestly with their, um, with their, with, with alternative views, showing the coherence and the evidence for what he was saying. More often than not, such reasoning uh, um, uh, will involve dialogue and discussion as, uh, as, as is implied actually often in, uh, in this world. Just, just a, uh, Ruth mentioned the doorway initiative and the glad you asked course. Uh, it's part of our, our commitment to, uh, uh, to engage in dialogue, open conversation, to help people to see the uh, reasonableness of Christianity. Just a little, uh, very, very brief plug. The, the, the 10th of February, we're going to have a break in the Glad You Asked talk and we're going to watch a film, Mystic River. And it's designed, that evening will be, will be designed simply to be a level playing field and an open opportunity for anyone from whatever background and position that they, uh, they've come from to discuss the issues raised in that film. We're committed to that, just as, uh, as the Apostle Paul was. But his reasoning, his dialogue, still didn't stop him being misunderstood, verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, this se- he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Being a philosopher, Epicurean, Stoic or whatever, doesn't uh, make you immune from misunderstanding something. We'll learn more about those, uh, those two groups uh, ne- next week. But they exhibit a couple of characteristic misunderstandings that Christians hit again and again. The first characteristic is found in, the, in the, uh, that word, babbler that uh, is thrown at Paul. It was a characteristic um, term of abuse of philosophers in Paul's day. They bandied it around um, uh, quite commonly. It conjured up the image of a bird pecking at seeds. They're suggesting that Paul has picked up a whole range of bits and pieces of the uh, of information as randomly as a pigeon on Trafalgar Square and he's just randomly swallowed all of those grains of wheat. Worse than that, he's now devoted to spouting these random thoughts in public, trying to make him look clever by his great collection of facts, but actually unable to fit the pieces, pieces all together. In modern language they're saying he's got no coherent worldview. Not like us, they say. And next week we're going to see Paul's whole speech is designed to demonstrate that far from being a babbler, he proclaims something highly coherent, perhaps more coherent 
than their philosophizing. But this week we need to just recognize that people will hear the Christian message as incoherent. By and large, they will just pick up little bits of what uh, um, Christians believe and, and, and they won't see it as, as, a, as a clear explanation of, of God's world. Christians believe in no sex before marriage, don't they? Well, surely that's just promulgating Victorian prudery. Christians are opposed to other religions, especially paganism, aren't they? They've picked up uh, the vestiges of witch-burning fanaticism and crusading imperialism. Christians believe in the resurrection. You know where they got that from? Zoroastrianism, you know. In those days there were lots of myths about people rising from the dead. Christians believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, don't they? A nasty, pre-modern, eastern potentate of a God. Christianity is just a seed-picking collection of incoherent, ancient beliefs all packaged together that they insist on promulgating to the rest of us. That's how we will be heard. And we have to learn to show people But what we believe actually fits together. It makes sense. It provides a unifying, satisfying understanding of this world. I remember very vividly talking to a young woman some uh, while ago after the latest in a, a long series of disastrous sexual relationships that she'd had. And I remember explaining to her that Christianity teaches that sex is deeply precious to God because relationships are deeply precious to God. I remember telling her that that God gives us the pleasure of sex to help us to maintain long-term committed relationships because frankly anyone can see it's pretty hard. God needed to give us some help. I remember telling her that if she, if she indulged in sex without a long-term commitment, then she was always going to get hurt. Either because the power of sex would bind them together when there were other reasons that they just couldn't stay together. Or because actually, for her, sex became a degraded currency. And so it never could really function to hold her together in the sort of long-term relationship that she knew she needed. I remember very vividly what she said in response. I remember her saying, well, I knew Christians were against sex before marriage. But I never saw why. And now I see. See, if the world around simply sees what we believe as a a jumbled hodgepodge set of beliefs that we simply promulgate as babblers, they will never take us seriously. 
they will never see the glory of the gospel. They will never actually be persuaded that maybe the little world, the little pond that they live in, may not be all that there is. Maybe they could break out into something altogether more glorious. The other um, misunderstanding, the other element of confusion that is also very, very uh, clear here and in today's world is found in um, that phrase in verse 18. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. See these Athenians uh, sitting on their... uh, um, in their their great council, are are saying effectively, well, your beliefs, Paul, may be fine for fundamentalist Jerusalem. They may be fine for those uh, simple little pagans up there in Lystra and Derby and Iconium. They may even be fine for bustling uh, um, uh, uh, Philippi. But we're Athens. We're not going to accept foreign gods. The foreignness of Christianity has always, always been been one of the great hurdles that the gospel has had to get across as it moved from one culture to another. For the last 200 years it has been a great challenge for Christian missionaries. It was the great challenge in uh, 18th century India when uh, William Carey um, went, went there and had to fight against the, the perceived identification of Christianity and uh, British cultural imperialism or the British East India Company. It was the great challenge of, uh, of 19th century China when Hudson Taylor went to China and had to work enormously hard to shed the image that Christianity was fundamentally a Western thing. And especially, in fact, if a culture is self-confident and proud, as these Athenians were, sometimes you can get to, um, you, you can get a um, uh, not not just a rejection, but an outright outright reaction against it, as China saw in the Boxer Rebellion at the beginning of the 20th century, or as Kenya, as it as it began to come of age, um, discovered in the Mau Mau Rebellion of the of the 1950s. What we don't see though, and I don't think we appreciate fully and deeply enough, is that Christianity is foreign to Britain these days. To an increasing number of people, these people are advocating foreign gods. And what uh, um, missionaries have learned down through the ages, we must learn. As people have moved away from anything like a Christian understanding of the world.
the 19th century William Carey and others had to distance themselves very, very firmly from the British East India Company and set up an indigenous, self-supporting mission station that stood separate from all that cultural imperialism that was so prevalent in India. In the 19th century, Hudson Taylor had, had, to, um, had to present himself in the garb and the style of a uh, spiritual teacher in China so that they would not perceive the message to be foreign. And actually as the missionary effort has been successful in places like China and India and Africa we have seen a fundamentally indigenous church a church that now people say These, this is my people's religion not just someone else's religion and we have seen those churches thrive and if Christianity is to thrive and to grow in Britain again it must be because God's church lives in a way that makes people say this could be my faith this could be my religion this is not foreign to me. When you go to work, perhaps, if you've got a non-Christian friend at work, why not ask them the question, what sort of people do you think go to church? In summary, their answer will almost certainly be people who are not like me. These people are advocating foreign gods. One of the big efforts and energies that we're putting in as, uh, uh, as a church is to break down those barriers. Let the gospel live in post-Christian Britain. One of the distressing statistics about, uh, about our life but about churches everywhere in, the, in this country is that by and large they are only um, seeing um, nearly all of their converts are people who are nominally from a Christian background. There's a growing number of people who are not even close to coming from a Christian background. And the church is barely reaching them. Two confusions then. Confusion that Paul was a babbler. Do you babble with your friends? Or are you learning as you talk, talk, talk to them? To not ex only explain what you believe but why you believe it and why it's the healthiest thing to believe and that Christianity is foreign to you do we in our life together 
live as foreigners in a post-Christian world? Or do we live alongside people? Next week we're going to look at what exactly Paul said to, uh, to these philosoph- uh, philosophers. But let me uh, ask you, do you think you are ready to speak Is there distress in your heart for those people that drives you to speak? Are there words on your lips ready to explain? See, in a a world of tadpoles, a frog will always have a difficult time. The good news is though, Tadpoles can become frogs.